welcome to 1867 and all that. Season 2, Episode 2. The Bromance Breaks Up. Let's start with our old friend William Lyon Mackenzie. If you recall, Mackenzie was the reforming journalist and politician, enemy of the family compact, and impatient man of action who had led the disastrous rebellion in the autumn of 1837 in Upper Canada. After his failed rebellion, Mackenzie had fled to the United States, and after trying unsuccessfully to resurrect the rebellion from across the border, he had eventually settled into a life of moderate penury in the United States, nursing his resentments and raising his family. Now, famously, his daughter, Isabel, would always remember these hard years of exile and raised up her own son with a steady diet of tales of these hardships. Now, that man, of course, was Mackenzie's grandson, William Lyon Mackenzie King, the longest-serving and undoubtedly the oddest of Canada's post-Confederation prime ministers. King was determined to resuscitate his grandfather's reputation and even went as far as suppressing a critical biography of his namesake. That was for the future, though. Back in the mid-19th century, life changed for Mackenzie, the grandfather, the rebel, when the Lafontaine-Baldwin government eventually convinced the British to extend a general pardon to all those who had participated in the earlier rebellions. Life had returned to something of a settled peace in the Canadas, and this allowed Mackenzie to return to Toronto, the city where he had been mayor in the 1830s. Mackenzie even resumed a life in politics, and the voters of Haldeman County elected him to a seat in the Legislative Assembly. The trick for William Lyon Mackenzie, and for many of the former rebels, was that political life had moved on. Those who now led the Reform Coalition were the moderate reformers of the Baldwin-LaFontaine type. And while Mackenzie certainly preferred Baldwin to a Tory, he still found much to criticize in his supposed reform ally and leader. This isn't even to mention the scabs of personal grudges which had built up, unforgotten, festering. In the early 1850s, William Lyon Mackenzie was back in Upper Canada and back in the Legislative Assembly. And he had at least one more major role to play in the politics of the Canadas, and that was to politically execute Robert Baldwin. Robert Baldwin ought to have been at the pinnacle of his career. The man of one big idea, responsible government, had won. The Canadas now enjoyed responsible government. In 1851, he was serving as the Attorney General of Canada West and the head of the government in that section of the Canadas. He governed alongside his longtime friend, Louis Hippolyte Lafontaine, who was himself the Attorney General for Canada East. That was how government worked in this dualistic of the Canadas, along twinned lines, one Attorney General for each for the East and one Attorney General for the West. There was as yet no real position of Prime Minister, and instead the two men shared this role, though Baldwin would have possibly deferred to Lafontaine, who held the support of more members in the Assembly. And this was very much an issue for Baldwin. Exactly how many members in the Assembly from Upper Canada, that is, Canada West, supported him? It's a question that would uh, come to matter in general, and also for Baldwin in particular. Enter stage left William Lyon Mackenzie. The former rebel leader, the red-wigged firebrand who had gathered rebel troops at Montgomery's Tavern, and had hoped to oust Canada from the clutches of the British Empire, but who had failed, was not pleased. He sat in the assembly alongside Louis-Joseph Papineau, his fellow French-Canadian rebel leader, who had also returned from exile. 
Mackenzie had demanded that he be compensated for as many tribulations and sufferings, back payment for his lost salary and other matters, but Baldwin had never managed to grant him what he wanted. And Mackenzie, like a number of other reformers in the assembly, still wanted more reform. They wanted a more republican form of government, more elections, more democracy. Standing in the way of what Mackenzie saw as necessary reform was the ever-moderate Robert Baldwin. In June of 1851, it was a seemingly small issue that brought Baldwin down. But bring him down, it did. The issue was a reform to the court of chancery. Baldwin had created this court as part of a more general reform only two years earlier. Now, William Lyon Mackenzie rose in the assembly and demanded that the assembly get rid of Baldwin's creation. If, like me, you're wondering why on earth this mattered or what a court of chancery even is, heck, maybe you're asking why are we even talking about it on this podcast, then know that I am with you. But the thing is, it very much mattered to Baldwin, and he wasn't at all pleased to have to sit morosely through a speech by Mackenzie attacking his creation. Mackenzie's motion was like that wafer-thin mint in the famous Monty Python sketch from the Meaning of Life movie, the one where the enormously fat man who has already gorged himself on copious quantities of food is offered just one tiny wafer-thin mint. He accepts and then promptly explodes from his gluttony. Only in the case of Robert Baldwin, he didn't explode. Instead, he resigned. He stepped down as attorney general and said, I've had enough. I can no longer govern. I'm done. He hadn't even lost the vote. Mackenzie's motion to annul the Chancery Court failed. But in the aftermath, when Baldwin counted the votes and saw that a majority of his upper Canadian colleagues had voted with Mackenzie and against him, it was too much for Baldwin. He delivered his resignation to Governor Elgin and stepped away from government. This was only the first part of the Bromance Brothers' breakup his compatriot Louis Lafontaine wasn't much longer for government either. Although he held on for a couple of months, Lafontaine too resigned by the end of September 1851. And that was that. Within a matter of months over the summer of 1851, the leaders of the great ministry, the creators of the Reform Coalition who had established responsible government, stepped away. Lafontaine and Baldwin, having achieved the greatest of political success, exited the scene. What on earth had happened. You probably won't be surprised to hear me say we need to step back here and get a better sense of the context of the Canadas more generally in the early 1850s, and also about how these broader developments were fraying the edges and threatening to entirely split apart the Reform Coalition. So first then, some context. In the 1850s, the Canadas were in the midst of widespread social and economic transformation. Wheat farming reigned supreme in this decidedly rural economy. But don't think of this agricultural economy as a sleepy rural idyll. It was a dynamic, buzzing commercial economy with small centers, places like Montreal, of course, but also Toronto and Hamilton and London, channeling goods in an internationally connected network of trade. What's more, as the lands were cleared, the timber industry boomed as well. Governments helped to build canals to take goods to market. The 1850s were about to see a massive railway bonanza that would finally see the age of rail arrive in British North America with all of the economic activity, 
but also corruption and risk and volatility that railways brought with them. Immigrants had arrived in large numbers from the British Isles, especially from Ireland in the 1840s, and they continued to come into the 1850s, making the Canadas, especially Upper Canada, a decidedly British colony. Even so, natural increase, that is, population increase the old-fashioned way by having babies, also pushed up the population. Year by year, it became increasingly clear to Canadians that the frontier was closing. The availability of new agricultural lands for settlement were filling up. Colonization roads would be built into the, the Saguenay and Canada East and North into the Shield and Canada West. But farmers looking for new lands and new lands for their children faced an environment of scarcity. This would have a whole host of implications, especially for Indigenous peoples who faced mounting threats to what little land they still held, especially as Canadians looked north and westward. Now, I'm just going to put this comment here as a bookmark for now. It's fundamentally important and a fascinating story in its own right, and we're going to come to it in Season 3 when we turn to the Northwest and deal much more extensively with how all of these developments affected Indigenous peoples. So, Hang on, we'll get there in a very detailed fashion. For now, just note that this bustling expansionism with no clear outlet exerted a constant pressure on upper Canadian politics in particular and fueled the ambitions of people who otherwise had found themselves within the reform coalition that Baldwin and Lafontaine led but who were increasingly dissatisfied with Baldwin's too hesitant approach to progress and development. Population growth, especially in Upper Canada, also fed into what would be one of the most significant political issues of the next decade and a half, representation by population. Now get used to this phrase, as we'll hear it a lot this season, or its, its shortened version, rep by pop. You might recall that when the Union of the Canadas had been foisted upon British North America in 1841, joining Upper and Lower Canada together, much to the chagrin especially of Lower Canadians and not a few Upper Canadians too, the Act of Union had created a dual political system. And the dual system insisted on sectional equality. That is, the subjects of each of the former colonies were represented in the Assembly by equal numbers of representatives. 42 from Lower Canada, Canada East, and 42 from Upper Canada, Canada West. Back in 1841, Lower Canadians had howled in indignation at this undemocratic system. Why should Upper Canada, with its smaller population, receive an equal number of representatives as Lower Canada? How on earth could this be fair? It wasn't Lower Canada's only criticism of the Union, but it definitely mattered. Yet, as immigration boomed over the next decade, the population of each colony shifted, and Upper Canada's population grew even more so than the Lower Colony, helped along by the fact that large numbers of Lower Canadians left the colony to find work in industries of New England south of the border. The Canadas, being a modern, progressive, burgeoning state, had created their own census to be conducted every 10 years. The second census took place in 1851, the same year that Baldwin and Lafontaine resigned. And it showed what many had suspected, that Upper Canada's population now loomed larger than that of Lower Canada. 
Now, what could have been merely a boring tale of numbers and statistics instead fueled radical demands for political change. Now, though, it was upper Canadians insisting that the system was unfair. How, they asked, could a representative government work within the straitjacket of sectional equality? What of the hundreds of thousands of unrepresented upper Canadians? What was needed, a growing number of reformers demanded, was representation by population. That is, representation in the assembly and parliament, which matched the relative population levels so that each member of the assembly, each of the people's representatives, could be elected by and answerable to a roughly equal number of electors. There was absolutely no way that representatives of the French-Canadian bloc in the assembly were going to agree to diminish their power by giving the English-speaking and almost entirely Protestant Upper Canada more members. And so, for some time, this demand was instantly rejected. Now, there were politically astute leaders from Upper Canada who realized that Rep. by Pop was a non-starter with Lower Canadians, and that the only way to form a government was to win Lower Canadian support. On the other hand, one couldn't entirely abandon Upper Canada, and so the key to building governments increasingly came to include successfully managing this tension promising just enough to English Canadians to address their concerns about the unfairness of the system without conceding to full-on representation by population. But year by year, the critics of the existing system, those who decried what they called French domination and the iniquities and the inequities of the presently, present sectionally equal system, they, well, they grew louder. They did, after all, have the force of democratic argument on their side. It actually was not fair the way the current system worked, just as it hadn't been back in 1841 when it was set up and worked in the other direction, underrepresenting uh, French Catholic Canada. But in the Canadas, there was always the issue of dualism, of the two sections and their equality, that pressed against these democratic aspirations. Which would it be? Sectional equality or representation by population? The problem for someone like Robert Baldwin was that he had to bring the two sides together. As a reformer, he ostensibly represented the party which contained those most strenuously making these democratic arguments for representation by population in Upper Canada. At the same time, he also led the party, or alongside Lafontaine led the party, that fostered this cross-section coalition with French Canadians, those most opposed to any change at all and most committed to sectional equality. His party, and remember, parties were very loose things in these days, tried to contain these cleavages within itself, and it was not an easy split to hold together. You could say that the nerve center for the problem facing Baldwin and the Reform Coalition was on many days in the office of a smart and overly confident young lawyer and journalist named William McDougall. In the early 1850s, Discontented reformers gathered in McDougall's office and planned their attacks on their erstwhile allies in the reform government. They soon attracted a name for themselves, the Clear Grits. They saw themselves as a reform faction of ideological purity, or in the lingo of the day, all sand and no dirt, clear grit all the way down. By this they meant that they had real tough character and abrasively urged the most essential reforms of the day without what many in their group would have said was the, the humbug of the leaders of the Baldwin-Lafontaine ministry. 
they represented the views of many in what was called the Peninsula, that region of settlement west and south of Toronto, where reform was strongest. And if you've noticed a link between the clear grits and the shorthand some people still use to describe liberals in Canada today, grits, then you'd be right. This is the origin of that phrase. The clear grits were a mix of old and new. They contained the radicals of the 1820s and 1830s who had played their part in the rebellions, people like William Lyon Mackenzie and John Rolfe. They also, though, had newer and younger members, like McDougall himself, who was only in his late 20s at this time. Now, McDougall isn't going anywhere. We're going to see him in the lead-up to Confederation, and we'll see him at his lowest point next season when Canada too quickly tries to take control of the Northwest. But for now, in the early 1850s, he was at the center of this dynamic group of reform critics, the Clear Grits, who thought that Baldwin and LaFontaine ministry wasn't moving fast enough. So what did the Clear Grits believe? It was a mix of British and American radical ideas. They wanted things like the secret ballot. They wanted lean and cheap government, free of the corruption that they saw in having too much government expenditure. They wanted a wider franchise. Remember, voting at this time was still tied to the ownership of property. They also wanted, no surprise here, representation by population. What was the use of democracy if one person's vote counted more than another's? The Clear Grits were also decidedly Protestant and voluntarist. That is, they wanted a separation of church and state. Churches, in their view, ought to be only supported by their parishioners. Any official support for the church, the kind that very much existed in French Catholic Lower Canada, and also remnants of which existed in Upper Canada, was anathema to them. So, you can see the problem for the LaFontaine-Baldwin coalition. To these radicals, all of the kind of compromises that were necessary to win over French Catholic voters smacked to them of corruption and impurity. The problem for Baldwin was that he was supposed to represent these fellows in the government, and yet issue after issue kept coming up for debate in the assembly, which stoked their resentment. The Clear Grits complained about what they called French domination, and some, but not all, of this phrase can be chalked up to prejudice. It also came, though, from an aggrieved feeling that whenever conflicts arose about church and state, governments conceded to the wishes of French Catholics over those who held to purely voluntarist principles. Now, over the next few episodes, we're going to see these issues arise, so I'll just touch on them lightly here. They included debates about what to do with the clergy reserves. Remember, these were the public lands that had been set aside in the initial Canadian constitution to provide support for the established churches. For the clear grits, the answer was simple. The clergy reserves needed to be secularized right away, the money going to public and not religious purposes. There was also the issue of schooling, and in particular, separate schooling. Now, like in Ontario, where I live today, separate schools really meant Catholic schools. Now, especially as Irish Catholic immigration had grown in the 1840s, this issue kept emerging for debate when Irish Catholics and their French Catholic supporters demanded more rights for separate schools in Upper Canada. Any movement on this front struck the clear grits as an infringement on public schools and the separation of church and state. So, 
you can see the problem that had emerged for someone like Robert Baldwin, who tried to hold this coalition together. The Reform Coalition had become a schizophrenic monster, with each of its many sides uncertain it wanted to be together. Having tried to hold it together and being forced to listen to all sides for what seemed far too long, Robert Baldwin, and soon after Louis Lafontaine, decided enough was enough. They'd already achieved their ultimate goal, the winning of responsible government. For Robert Baldwin, the betrayal of his upper Canadian so-called supporters, their failure to defend his legal reforms, had been the final push, the wafer-thin mint, that pushed him to resign. But it could really have been almost anything. Canada had one responsible government, but that clearly wasn't the end of the story. Far from it. Okay, that gets us somewhat up to date on Baldwin and Lafontaine. I realize, though, that I left something hanging last week. We met Alessandro Gavazzi on his ill-fated trip to Quebec City, but I left you hanging with Gavazzi heading upriver to Montreal. So let's go back there now. For Gavazzi found himself uh, there, too, at the center of political divisions in the Canadas and discovered it was dangerous to insult Catholicism in its Canadian metropolis. Montreal was all too accustomed to political violence. The largest city in British North America had, at this time, a population of only about half of which was French-Canadian, but which also contained large numbers of recent Irish Catholic immigrants, many of whom had found work in the rough world of warehouses on the waterfront. Gavazzi was set to speak at a church on Haymarket Square. He arrived early in the evening of the 9th of June, a hot, humid night. In anticipation of the talk, the church fathers had already boarded up the windows that looked out onto the square. So, yeah, they kind of wondered about what was going to happen. A number of Gavazzi's supporters had stashed pistols and cudgels in the church itself. The mayor had refused the offer of a number of Protestants to act as a police force, and instead uh, a group of about 40 police gathered in the square to try to prevent a riot. The mayor had also requested the aid of the military, who had reluctantly agreed to be on standby. About 100 troops from the 26th Regiment, only just arrived in Montreal from Gibraltar, huddled in a nearby building, sweltering in the evening heat, ready to be called out. They didn't wait long. Even as Gabazzi began his speech inside, a crowd of about two to three hundred angry Irish Catholics gathered outside in the square. Even though they couldn't hear Gavazzi himself, they didn't like what they heard, that is, cheers from inside the church. As the evening stretched on, and as the police and crowd eyed each other, things turned ugly. The crowd outside shouted taunts at the police. Soon, they turned to hurling stones. Fights broke out. Then, a group of Gavazzi supporters came out from the church, ostensibly to aid the police. Some of these began firing into the crowd itself. While some police claimed to have been happy for the help in handling a situation uh, escalating rapidly out of control, others said the helpers only made things worse. The crowd was beaten back, but not defeated. Hearing shots ring out, the mayor ran to the soldiers from the 26th Regiment and asked that they come out. As Gavazzi finished his speech, the troops entered the square, one group of soldiers taking up a position lower down in the square facing the rioters, and another group of soldiers facing up towards the church itself and anyone who would exit. A 
Unfortunately, someone had already ordered that the soldiers load their muskets. And so this means of calming the crowd, the sobering sight of seeing the soldiers empty powder and ball into a musket, was taken away. The talk now finished, and the crowd from the church emerged out into the square. The different sides shouted and hurled insults at each other. Scuffles broke out at the edges of the square, and chaos loomed as the church crowd passed through the ranks of the soldiers who didn't know who was friend or foe. Lower down in the square, the rioters started coming at the soldiers. At this point, it's unclear what happened. Several witnesses claimed to have heard the order shouted, Fire! 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 But no one later claimed to have given it. One lady later claimed that it was a a disgruntled Irishman trying to make trouble who had done so. Regardless of who gave the order, the soldiers fired. First, the soldiers in one rank fired in rapid succession, and then other group of soldiers, those facing the church, also unloaded their weapons. The crash of muskets rang out and smoke rose over the square. Some in the crowd initially thought the soldiers had only fired blanks, but the fallen, bloody victims soon showed otherwise. Some soldiers had fired their weapons high over the crowd as a warning, but alas, there were later accounts of Montrealers distant from the square who were felled by these shots. The firing cleared the square, but did not end the riots. Stirred to anger, groups of rioters continued to clash throughout the night and even over the coming days. Gavazzi lectured no more. He left the city, leaving a bloody wake behind him. The initial number of dead seems to have been about 10, with dozens more wounded. But over the coming days, as others succumbed to their injuries, as many as 40 are said to have died. Some died from the soldiers' musket fire, others from beatings and pistol fire from the crowd. It was the bloodiest civil conflict yet. It wasn't a battle between French and English, but rather between Catholic and Protestant over religious differences and the idea of free speech. The Gavazzi riots, like the Rebellion Losses Bill riots before them, and the Street of Blood riot even earlier, showed that even though Canada was relatively peaceful, that word relatively hides a lot. At key moments, the division of political and sectional conflict spilled into the open, a lesson to those sitting in the House of Assembly that if they didn't solve the colony's problems, others would take matters into their own hands. Thanks for listening to 1867 and all that. I hope you enjoyed this second installment of season two. I have to say I've missed bringing these episodes to you, and I'm, I'm glad to be back in the saddle again. Next week, we look to what is left over uh, now that Robert Baldwin and Louis Lafontaine have left the scene. Can the reformers who replaced them in government manage to do any better and tape together the vast cleavages in the coalition that these two could not? Or would other political figures emerge or another kind of coalition emerge to try to govern what was proving to be, well, I won't say ungovernable, but certainly the very difficult to govern colony of the United Province of Canada? If you like what you've heard, please leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tell your friends, maybe even your enemies or frenemies. Send me a note too. I always enjoy getting those. 1867 and all that is created by me, Christopher Dummett. This year, it's also funded by you, the listeners. For $5 a month, you can become an 1867 and all that patron, a real-life supporter of history in action. 
A special shout out this week to Brian Philcox, who became our very first patron, even before the first episode went up. Thanks, Brian, and to everyone for all of your support. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that. <laughs>